Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello, and welcome to Compliance Clarified, a podcast for risking compliance professionals brought to you by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Each week, we discuss news stories and topical issues from our journalists and analysts in the U.S., Europe, Asia, and Australia. I'm Rachel Wolcott, Senior Editor, coming to you today from London, and I'm speaking to Helen Chan, our regulatory intelligence expert based in Hong Kong. Welcome, Helen. Hi, Rachel. Good to be back. Glad to have you. So in episode three of season nine, Helen and I are going to discuss recent developments in economic sanctions around the world with a focus on Asia and North Korea. We're going to delve into the growing entanglement between secondary sanctions risk and cryptocurrencies. It can be difficult to distinguish between good and bad actors in crypto, especially because the sector has a track record of performative compliance. That's been exemplified by recent U.S. enforcement agencies' lawsuits against Binance, for example. Many crypto exchanges and services, Tornado Cash and Bitslato are recent examples, have been sanctioned or closed for helping sanctioned entities launder assets. Famously or infamously, North Korean cyber criminals use the crypto universe to generate income and hide it with impunity. All those assets are going into DPRK's Weapons of Mass Destruction program. Thanks for the introduction, Rachel. You recently published an in-depth article on TRI about crypto asset money laundering links between North Korea and Russia. Could you share with us some of your findings? They are quite juicy. (laughs) Thanks, Ellen. The world may have been fascinated by Kim Jong-un's recent train trip to Russia but sanctions and military experts were not surprised. And in fact, some were a bit frustrated by the lack of action on DPRK sanctions busting. The country's WMD program is thriving, and that's because no country apart from the U.S. pays much attention to companies doing business with DPRK. That's not to say, however, that the South Koreans and Japanese are not concerned. Uh, They are. Closer ties with Russia means a couple of things. Russia gets weapons for the war in Ukraine. What experts tell me is Russia is interested in the DPRK's weapons stockpiles of uh, Soviet-era weapons. And another thing that this the closer ties with North Korea indicate are Russia's further isolation from the international community. It's not going to be cooperating with international law enforcement. And this, again, will benefit the DPRK's WMD program. What else is in this deal for the DPRK? Um, Access to Russian technology, possibly money. I mean, it's still to be determined whether DPRK becomes a client state of Russia, which could have cash benefits. But most importantly, Russia will move from turning a blind eye to sanctions violations to actively flouting sanctions and embargoes. That means more coal and other fossil fuels for DPRK, 
as well as the ability to place crypto assets out of international law enforcement's reach on Russian crypto exchanges. And as part of that, it's going to give more and easier ways for the DPRK to convert digital assets into fiat currency. Honestly, though, crypto assets stolen by DPRK hackers or taken in payment as payment from its extensive ransomware programs are already sitting on wallets on crypto exchanges like Binance and Huobi and pro probably a lot of others. And it's, they're difficult to recover because these exchanges do not always cooperate with court orders. They, of course, would dispute that. Um, so, Helen, let's move on to talk about some... North Korea, DPRK, it's the same thing, related sanctions actions. The U.S. has been very active monitoring trade, shipping, and related financial transactions. What are, what are we seeing here? Um, so, Rachel, you're right in that the U.S. has been very aggressive, um, especially with extraterritorial enforcement of sanctions against North Korea. So I'll just kind of quickly run through some interesting recent enforcement actions. Just this past April, British American Tobacco agreed to pay more than, I think it was 635 million US dollars in a settlement with the United States Department of Justice over charges that the company conspired to commit bank fraud and also violate US sanctions by selling tobacco products to North Korea. The DOJ further claimed that uh, British American tobacco conspired to defraud financial institutions into processing transactions on behalf of North Korean citizens. This penalty imposed by the DOJ is actually the largest penalty ever imposed for North Korea-related sanctions violations, and this is some um, U.S. sanctions that I'm referring to. The, the company entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the DOJ as a part of the settlement, and one of its subsidiaries in Singapore pled guilty. Separately, in 2020, the DOJ charged two North Koreans and one Malaysian national for violating U.S. sanctions against North Korea by defrauding banks, again, into processing transactions for North Korean citizens. One thing that was interesting about this enforcement action is that one of the North Korean defendants was actually a suspect in the assassination of Kim Jong-nam at the airport in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Of course, Kim Jong-nam was um, Kim Jong-un's half-brother. Here and there, oil tankers and shipping vessels in Asia have actually been seized by U.S. authorities in recent years. The DOJ, along with other regulators, have claimed that these vessels were being used to violate North Korean sanctions, and we've actually seen seizures in places like Cambodia and Singapore as well. One sort of bolder, but I think quite noteworthy enforcement action I wanted to highlight, especially for financial institutions, is the 2012 designation of Kunlun Bank in China by the U.S. Treasury as a primary money laundering concern over the bank's facilitation of transactions for sanctioned banks in Iran. This designation effectively cut Kunlun off from the U.S. financial system, so it was quite significant. This is noteworthy, I think, because North Korea is also very much on the radar for sanctions risks, um, not just for U.S. authorities, but also with the U.N. as well. 
the most uh, recent report of the panel of experts assisting the DPRK Sanctions Committee of the United Nations warned that North Korea is a very high-risk jurisdiction for money laundering and cyber activity-related financial crimes. This would include theft of digital assets and laundering of crypto assets, which Rachel, you touched upon as well. Just kind of adding to that uh, to highlight the scale of digital assets that are kind of being laundered or stolen by state-affiliated groups in North Korea, um, an analysis of on-chain data by Chainalysis estimates that North Korean state-affiliated hacker groups stole a record-breaking something like $630 million U.S. million worth of digital assets in 2022. This year could actually break that record just to further highlight kind of the scale of funds we're talking about here. And um, the UN has said that just like what you said, Rachel, these stolen funds are being funneled towards North Korea's nuclear weapons program, which means that these funds are also making their way through global commodities markets and, and you know, the global financial system as well. Yeah, I've heard anecdotally from people who, you know, do a similar job to chain analysis that some of these numbers, the estimates for the amount of crypto assets stolen might actually be a little higher because often private individuals are victims of these hacks and those don't always get reported, but people have been looking a little deeper. Uh, I was speaking to somebody in Singapore about this the other week. They think it could be much higher. And just to add in a little bit about uh, DPRK and crypto and sanctions, the OFAC, US sanctions implementation body, which is part of the U.S. Treasury, they have also sanctioned individuals for the crypto asset activity. These have been North Korean citizens and also, I think, recently some Chinese citizens, which I can put a link to that in the show notes. So, you know, this is a, a big area of concern, especially in the crypto space, because it seems very easy for the Korean, North Koreans to make money this way. It does. And and I think what's more concerning is that it's also very easy to move illicit funds undetected um, through on-ramps, off-ramps. So you have this commingling between the crypto sector and traditional financial institutions as well. So I guess going on from that note, Rachel, in your article, you also had some sort of additional insights from experts on uh, compliance-related matters with North Korean-related sanctions, not just for financial services firms, but other global businesses. Are there any highlights you would like to share with us? Yeah. So I spoke to Aaron Arnold from RUSI, which is the Royal United Services Institute, and he's a DPRK expert. He also worked on the UN panel of experts. And he told me that there's a real misunderstanding about how DPRK uses crypto. And he likened it to mobster activity. That would be stealing a truckload of goods, you know, for like TVs or whatever, something out of The Sopranos or Goodfellas. And, or Fast and Furious. Yeah. <laughs> and selling them at a, at a discount. And he was saying that DPRK does the same thing with crypto. They steal it and they sell it on at a discount. And right now, US authorities are monitoring these 
crypto caches that the DPRK has. And when DPRK wants to liquidate assets, it's not hard to do it in a way that's difficult to track. They can, you know, use mixers or use ways to disguise what what's going on, you know, contrary to what we've been led to believe about crypto, what, you know, everything's on chain, allegedly on chain with a hundred percent transparency, apparently not. So once the North Koreans convert to fiat, you know, they're free and clear. Whether, you know, these assets are eventually seized or not ha has no impact on them. And Aaron Arnold also said that another benefit of closer ties with Russia could be an easier route to the formal financial system, which doesn't seem to be a big problem for North Korea anyway, which goes in contrast with a lot of our conceptions about North Korea being this isolated place that doesn't have a lot of money to spend, that's unable to access international markets. Not so. There are plenty of countries who are turning a blind eye. So the benefit with Russia is widen the Koreans' ability to access financial services even further because there are plenty of countries who are doing business with Russia because they don't implement unilateral sanctions on Russia. They uh, have deals with Russia, like security or commodities deals. And either that or countries aren't rigorously implementing, let's just say, like US or uh, EU sanctions. But you know, one argument is that now if you're dealing with Russia, that might come with some North Korean risk. And potentially countries need to worry about that because even though they might not be implementing US or EU sanctions, they should, in theory, have UN obligations. As for the unfettered access to international banking that the UN panel of experts uh, points out, I mean, UN panel of experts on North Korea has been amassing uh, examples of DPRK sanctions violations for years. I mean, these you looked at these reports, Helen. They're like each one of them is about 400, 500 pages long. And it shows a couple of things that, like Russia, DPRK is expert on exploiting corrupt officials to progress their financial needs and as well using shell companies to access banking and get what it needs, be able to trade out there in the world. I mean, this is something that, you know, anybody who's read Putin's People will know that the Soviet Union was expert in and is still, you know, as Russia, as the Russian Federation, they've got it down to a fine art. <laughs> so the problem is that there hasn't been any new UN sanctions, any new designations on entities related to North Korea. So all these new companies are transacting freely. Again, Aaron at Rusi told me that these dealing with these businesses isn't going to trigger any alarms at banks because they're going to look like 
just normal transactions. They're not going to raise any bells because these companies aren't on a list. However, he and some of his colleagues have created a database that's free to use. It's called DPRK Reports. We'll put a link in the show notes. And it includes all the companies mentioned in the UN Panel of Experts report. So you go in there, you put in a name, you see where the North Korea links are. And that's a tool that has just been launched, I think, this summer. Sounds quite useful for for most compliance functions. I think that sort of commingling of the, the crypto and closer relations between Russia and North Korea suggest that sanctions compliance for financial institutions have become even more important than ever. Um, just because these shell companies haven't been designated, it doesn't mean that regulators don't have a way to identify and track illicit fund flows. I mean, obviously, with your, through your conversations with Aaron, he he and his colleagues were able to develop a tool. Regulators may also have enforcement tools as well. Yeah, I mean. You can see with the uh, British American Tobacco example that, though, especially in the U.S., they are keeping an eye on these things. The U.S. has made no bones this year about its desire to focus on companies and financial institutions, sanctions compliance, and probably um, anti-money laundering compliance too, and. You mentioned that this settlement with British American Tobacco was one of the biggest, was the biggest one so far. They made a big example last year with a cement company that was doing business with ISIS. This is a spotlight that you do not want to be in. Um, Helen, you know, we're talking about the U.S., but the sanctions landscape in Asia is different. And what's the approach in this huge region and what what might change attitudes there? So U.S. enforcement risk is something that is a high priority for most financial firms, especially in the finance industry, because of all this kind of extraterritorial focus that U.S. authorities, the DOJ, et cetera, they do have, especially when it comes to sanctions compliance. But at the same time, uh, sanctions enforcement risk by regulators in Asia is very much an emerging risk as well. Um, there's a few sort of recent developments I, I want to highlight. Um, presently, many Asian jurisdictions like Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, and Korea, they officially enforce UN sanctions. But historically, in practice, this um, enforcement activity has been quite cheap-ditch, especially when compared to what the U.S. style, like what the U.S. is doing in terms of enforcement. Uh, outside of the finance industry, I think in a lot of other industries in Asia, there is much less awareness of that sanctions risk. Um, for financial firms, obviously, they're acutely aware of their risk exposure uh, because of their reliance on their ability to process U.S. dollar transactions like that. That is essential for many business functions. But outside of that, I think in other industries, there is less awareness. Uh, however, this could change quite rapidly, given some kind of recent developments. Uh, two jurisdictions I would like to highlight are Singapore and Japan. So in Singapore, I think it was March 2022, Singapore imposed uh, unilateral sanctions on Russia over the ongoing war in Ukraine. 
this is actually quite a notable departure from the sanctions neutral approach that has been taken by the rest of the ASEAN member states. As a part of that initiative, the Singaporean government imposed uh, export controls on military goods, and they also imposed financial measures. Um, financial institutions in Singapore have to freeze assets of designated individuals or entities. They also have to comply with reporting obligations and bad transactions with Russian entities. The approach that is being taken by Singapore aligns with the approaches taken in countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, and across Europe. But the Singaporean approach is much more targeted. Um, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has since followed up with repeated compliance warnings for financial institutions. They've also explicitly said that digital payments and crypto asset service providers must also comply with these unilateral sanctions. And uh, firms can be fined up to, I think it is, $1 million for non-compliance. Um, on the enforcement front in Singapore, there, there have been some sort of recent enforcement actions of violations of sanctions against uh, North Korea and Russia by Singaporean authorities in Singapore against you know, local individuals on the ground. Typically, the jail sentences that have been imposed in these enforcement actions range from a few weeks to a few months, and uh, individuals can be fined up to, again, $1 million uh, for violations. That's, that's about the same as $730,000. Um, just to draw sort of a quick contrast between the enforcement approach in Singapore and you know, going back to the more aggressive style of U.S. Uh, enforcement, in the enforcement action against uh, British American Tobacco, in addition to sanctioning the company and its Singaporean subsidiary, there were three individuals who were named as defendants in the enforcement action. Um, one of them was a North Korean banker, and there were two Chinese nationals, and the DOJ has accused them of facilitating these sanctions violations. So all three of these individuals are currently at large in the wind, and the U.S. government is offering up to half a million dollars each for information on the Chinese nationals and up to five million dollars for information on the North Korean banker. So as you can see, the U.S. style of enforcement is very aggressive when it comes to North Korea related sanctions violations, whether it's sort of in terms of signing a company or, you know, in its pursuit of wanted fugitives. Just to hop over to Japan really quickly and, and talk a little bit about recent developments there. Japan's decision to align itself with the G7 stance on Russian sanctions is a significant departure from its kind of previously light touch approach when it comes to sanctions enforcement. Uh, since last year, Japan has implemented trade and economic sanctions against Russia. These restrictions are broader than the approach adopted by Singapore and is closer to like a blanket prohibition on transactions with Russian entities uh, by all businesses. One thing to note about Japan and sanctions sort of enforcement is that the tone of recent news reporting very much suggests that Japan will proactively enforce its sanctions against Russia, given the, the high profile commitment that they've made to the G7. So this is definitely a development that should be closely monitored by all businesses that are subject to Japanese laws. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. 
to the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. That is a big change, uh, like you said. It shows how the war in Ukraine has changed a lot of people's attitudes about a lot of things. But it also shows you that some of these changes can feel like very instantaneous, be a big, you know, shock shock to the system, which like we learned with the uh, sanctions related to uh, the invasion of Ukraine, makes a lot of work for the compliance people to dig through relationships and figure out where the uh, lines in the sand are and who might need to be de-risked. But talking about the impact on compliance and sanctions units inside banks, what are some of your big takeaways here? What do you think compliance officers need to know? Well, I think, you know, for Asia, it's it's important to be aware that unilateral sanctions regimes are cropping up in some jurisdictions. Singapore and Japan, we, we've highlighted, and local enforcement could become more proactive. Also, industries outside of finance, especially in Asia, again, they might have a lower awareness, which increases sort of the urgent need to assess where they are in terms of sanctions compliance and, you know, would it be necessary for them to invest in risk management resources or seek outside expertise to to advise them on how they can prepare to comply with uh, these amendments and updates to, to sanctions compliance requirements. Um, on the cryptocurrency front, which we've discussed, there is a lot of risk and that is a huge area of emerging risk. The Monetary Authority of Singapore has been continually refining its own regulatory stance on crypto assets, and it is expected to have one of the strictest crypto regimes in the region in the near future. And this will have compliance implications, not just for crypto firms in Singapore, but also banks as well, financial institutions as well. The MAS has said that it only grants licenses to crypto asset entities that have strong anti-money laundering controls and are compliant with Singaporean standards on financial crime. That includes sanctions compliance. And the MAS has also you know, made a point to say that most applicants for a crypto license in Singapore have not been successful to date. So I think what firms also need to keep in mind um, from this tone from the MAS is that financial crime-related enforcement action in Singapore will continue to to sort of be quite active. Uh, I mean, we've, we've seen a few sort of large actions recently in the AML space. Um, so it is completely conceivable that, you know, sanctions will come under, sanctions compliance especially, will come under more scrutiny, especially as we see more of these commingling between digital assets and uh, traditional financial institutions. Yeah. I mean, Singapore stakes a lot on its reputation as a financial center in Southeast Asia. I mean, being seen to be tough on financial crime and sanctions is going to be really important for them. It's a huge, huge industry for uh, the, you know, what is a relatively small island state. Well, not relatively, it is a small island state. So, just in terms of takeaways um, that I'd like to share is, this is a pretty straightforward one. 
if you're a bank, e-money institution, or a payment service provider, do enhanced due diligence on crypto exchanges. I cannot emphasize enough how opaque and hard to pin down their um, ownership structures are. A lot of them are difficult to determine, and some of them are now going even further afield to conceal the identity of the ultimate beneficial owners using BVI uh, corporate, so that's British Virgin Islands corporate structures, or going even further afield to uh, Samoa and Vanuatu. So if you are somebody trying to track down information on one of these crypto exchanges, sometimes it is Im literally impossible. So if you don't know who you're deal actually doing business with, maybe you need to think twice about that because some of these exchanges in Bitslato is a really good example of that. We can put a link to some of our reporting on that exchange, which was basically converting crypto into rubles or rubles into crypto. They are linked to organized crime. That That's all there is to it. And my other takeaway is please take a look at the DPRK reports database, which I said I will link to, to check whether companies you're doing business with or are your banking customers are actually DPRK shell companies. Like I said before, North Koreans are expert users of these corporate structures. So you don't want to be uh, caught out. Okay, well, that is it for this week's Compliance Clarified. Your feedback is important to us, so please give us a rating on your podcasting platform of choice, or you can get in touch directly. Our contact details are in the show notes. For more information about regulatory intelligence, please search for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence, or look in the show notes for a link, which will be there. Thanks so much, Helen. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me on, Rachel. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.